0: This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Joddle Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see Jodcast.net.
1: Hi, I'm here with Dr Bob Watson from the University of Manchester. Welcome back to the Jodcast. Hello,
0: yes, it's been a while.
1: Yeah. I thought, well, I thought I'd grab you because I'm not sure we've ever properly interviewed you about your research.
0: Uh, Well, I think I probably escaped by, well, actually by being out of the country for a long time. I think I was one of the first Jodcast enthusiasts because I sort of keep track of the news back at home, as it were, mm-hmm. while I was in foreign parts, so out in, in Tenerife.
1: Ah, so you're a long-time fan as well. Yes. That's good to know. I so, have you, a
0: T-shirt.
1: You have the T-shirt? Oh. I have
0: an original T-shirt.
1: I'm kind of jealous because I would like to have a T-shirt. So could you start off by telling us a little bit about what your research is on?
0: Okay, well, I tend to be a slightly strange jack-of-all-trades and master of norms, so I tend to work in between the technicians and the scientists starting way back with the Tenerife experiment, which was the first one I got involved with. Constantly, because we are building up this cosmic microwave background experiment with leftover parts back at Jodrell, we had this thing in the field, so I was constantly going between the technicians wanting to do tweaks and stuff. I had to build my own little... little well, we didn't even have an acquisition computer to begin with, so I had to build something out of... It was all done with traditional was chart recorders. <laughs> wow. So I had to build a, an analogue computer to, be able to do all the switchings. And we did drift scans through the moon just to calibrate it. Mm-hmm. And then it got sent out with me. I was doing an MSc course which had just finished, but we had this experiment that would look at the microwave background at 10 gigahertz and an angular scale at 8 degrees. They needed somebody to look babysit it while it was out in Tenerife for three months. Back at the end of 1984, I think, I went out with it. I was there for about 33 years, <laughs> off and on, mm-hmm. uh, looking after various CMB experiments. So we went from 10 to 15 to 30 gigahertz. Then we had a 30 gigahertz interferometer. And then that sort of led the way to the VSA, which is the very... Everybody's heard of the VLA, VLA, which is a very large array. It was a was very small array. So in collaboration with Cambridge and the IAC in Tenerife, we had this experiment make maps of the cosmic microwave background. This was quite a big project. I was sort of left on the island to look after it, <laughs> calibrate it, set up the cues and just observe various patches of the sky to integrate down to try and get the power spectrum. So when the project started we was hoping that we could actually get the doppler peak but as always gets slightly delayed because money problems and and uh, clarifying the site and everything like that. So we just missed getting the doppler peak. We concentrated on trying to evaluate the, the power spectrum over the peak and get the peaks and troughs that can then can so that the peak tells you that the universe is flat But the sub-peaks can tell you what the material content of the universe is. So if it's how much dark matter, at that time, the idea of dark energy was just a line. So if you do it really well, you can tell something about neutrinos. But that was towards the end of the project.
1: So you were saying that when you were working on the very small array, you were focusing on trying to get measurements of the power spectrum. But before the very small array, you said you were working on another kind of smaller project. That's where you started off.
0: Oh, yes. So this was Tenerife experiment. It was just given the name because it was an experiment against Tenerife. So. <laughs> and in the end, we got a prize from the town hall because it sort of raised the profile of Tenerife. Oh, wow. So that's yeah.
1: but,
0: but the actual Tenerife experiment was an experiment that was one of the sort of early Cosmic Microwave sprints, where you're actually trying to find a signal. Mm-hmm. So it was back in the days before there was a signal. So we had two horns, horns that were designed for go on telescopes to pick up the radiation reflected off the big parabolic dish. Mm-hmm. And an angular scale of about 8 degrees was the first one. And working at 10 gigahertz, because we obtained a that worked at 10 gigahertz, which just got you into the regime that you could start looking at the Cosmic Microwave Background. It just switched between... The signal from one horn to the other every 32 milliseconds, if I remember right. And there was a great big mirror in front of it, well, metal plate, that flipped over every 10 seconds or something like that. So then you could actually measure differences in temperature between various bits of the sky separated by 8 degrees on an Mm. angular scale of 8 degrees.
1: So each horn would measure a different patch of the sky?
0: Yeah, it was just pointing completely static at a point on the meridian. So the sky would drift through. So you would end up making a line map of temperature variation over the day. So we were locked into one particular declination. And then every week or so, I'd come along with my spanners and ratchet <laughs> down the, the elevation of the mirror so to get a different area of sky.
1: Ah, okay. So you've kind of been with the CMB since it's very early... Work, yes, yeah. yes. So <laughs> back,
0: so this was 1984. This was Rod Davis, Anthony Lazenby, who was inspired by the OVRO results. So they did some work with the Mark II uh, on an angular scale of about seven eight minutes. But that would only work during a hard frost out at Jodrell because you needed to work at 8, 10 gigahertz, something like that. But because the absolute critical part is the water vapour content of the atmosphere. Oh. So that emits, and of course if you, you look at the sky and you see clouds here and not there, you get this signal which interferes with the signal you're trying to find. So which is part of the reason why we went out to Tenerife, the Teide Observatory, which is about 2.4 kilometres above sea level. So you actually go up there, you're next to the Teide Mountain, which is even higher. And you can see all the clouds below you, so it's quite nice. Oh, especially wow. on, on a full moon. Yeah. So you see this sea of clouds behind you, all the water vapours below you, mm. and you've got a clear sky, so it's quite nice up there at night. It's impossible to identify constellations because there are so many stars.
1: Oh, wow. There's
0: just stars everywhere. You'll screw up your eyes a bit, thin out all the fainter stars, and ah, oh, yes, there's Orion.
1: I've never thought of too many <laughs> stars being too a problem. Yeah. <laughs> You were saying that um, they initially tried to make some measurements with the Mark II at Judge Yeah, would they be able to do that now? Probably
0: even more difficult now mm. because the problem then was water vapor, but nowadays you've got the problem of RFI. Mm-hmm. The demand of frequencies you're being allocated for doing Wi-Fi. See, so so Wi-Fi works at sort of two point four gigahertz, mm-hmm. which is the same as your microwave oven. And if your oscillator isn't perfect, then you get multiples of this, which would propagate up to 10 gigahertz. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. In order now to do cosmic microwave background experiments, you need to go out to isolated places like Atacama Desert in mm. Chile, Antarctica.
1: You were saying in the Tenerife experiment, you were looking at the power spectrum. And Could you briefly explain what that is?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, Okay, well, so this was a combination of... Tenerife experiment and oh, the VSA. Yes, sorry. The, the Tenerife experiment actually does have one of the distinctions of being the ground-based experiment with the lowest L value you, you can get to, an L of 22, the centre of the window function. The power structure of the microwave Background, the way I've explained it, is, is a bit like the graphic equaliser you had on your father's hi-fi system in that each knob looked at a particular range of very narrow frequencies. So rather than being sound frequency, well actually, the Cosmic microwave Background is actually looking at sound frequency in the very early universe, but on scales of hundreds of millions of light years at the time they were released. We now see those, as they were, like ripples through this last scattering surface, so you suddenly see these pressure waves on the surface of last scattering, is what we call the Cosmic microwave Background, so you see a whole load of ripples effectively across this sphere... And you can do a Fourier, something called a Fourier transform, which actually converts those spatial variations into an angular scale. So you can then plot the amplitude of these with angular size. So you see the predicted strongest signal you should see in the cosmic wave background is on one degree, which has an L value in this spherical harmonic analysis of around about 200. That peak tells you the shape of the universe, if it's open, closed, or just a critical, and it seems to be just a critical. So there's just enough energy for it to escape to, well, in the early models, to escape to infinity and just grind to a halt. But now we have this thing called dark energy, which is actually giving you a bit of extra push, and now it's actually making it accelerate, so the whole thing's getting a bit more complicated.
1: Mm. And actually that brings up a point, what's it been like to work in cosmology from before dark energy was a thing, and see that big transition because oh. for me it's really bizarre because I even in school learned about dark energy, and so it blew my mind to think about what it was like before then. And I've read some papers before then, and it's quite oh yes a transition. It is
0: it's been, the change has been phenomenal because mm. when I started, we were talking about an open baryonic universe, and that, and that was why we ended up doing the cosmic microwave background experiment because the predicted level was one part in ten to the four. So well, that's easy, you can just go out and observe for a few months and you would be able to see that. But then, after about six months, ooh, nothing there. The interchange between the theorists and the observers, I was one of the observers, so we would go and observe and get a new level. Your theory doesn't explain this, so they would <laughs> go away. So, Oh, well, we've forgotten this thing. Yes, yes, we, we need some... Ah, so we, we started off with isocurvature, with adiabatic fluctuations. So they're just like temperature variation, so you squash a bit of gas and it gets hotter. We think we can have isocurvature, so you vary the number of particles in, in your perturbation, but the temperature stays more or less the same. But then that didn't work. It didn't agree with what the large-scale structure you could see in the universe. So then they had to start throwing in dark matter, and then we got to the level where that didn't work, and then you had to play around with the sort of types of dark matter. So had to shift to cold dark matter rather than hot dark matter, which was sort of neutrinos. Again, that produced the wrong spectrum, and, and the universe didn't shape, didn't agree with it. We were just getting down to the level where they were starting to run out of ideas, and we said, "Oh, hang on, we think we can see something at around about <laughs> 1.5 times 10 to the minus six. Well, about 30 microkelvin. This is the signal, and we got getting to that limit that when W map, not not W that. Kobe got to the same level, so they just picked us
1: down. Oh, that must have been frustrating. Yes, yes.
0: Because yes. yeah. we were getting into this statistical grey area, so we could see you have this thing called a likelihood curve that tells you how likely a particular amplitudes are. For the long time, you could put a confident two-sig limit on it because you could say, well, the foregrounds, if there are any, would, would actually mean that the cosmic microwave background intrinsic signal was much less than this. We were actually seeing a bump. Our likelihood curve was flattening out at random, right, sort of this level of about 30 microkelvin, switching from a two sigma upper limit to a. You need to get to a two sigma detection, and there's a long integration time. You have to do that, so we're sort of stuck in limbo, and the, the bicep was stuck into this thing as well. we got lots more data, but our limit hasn't got any better. <laughs> and just as we sort of see the likelihood curve starting to dip down, at sort of ruling out zero tetrapeptides, Kobe published. Damn. <laughs>
1: So you briefly mentioned in all of that, foregrounds, what are they?
0: Foregrounds, so that's a very interesting subject since I'm also quite interested in foregrounds. So you've got this cosmic microwave background, which is way off 13.8 billion years ago, the signal was released. But nearer to us, that signal's got to go through all quasars, forming galaxies, galaxies, and our own galaxy and the biggest foreground is our own galaxy, and can produce signals both by synchrotron, by electrons whizzing around in the magnetic field of our, our own galaxy, and by dust particles. And it just so turned out that the Tenerife experiment at the time was working at a particular interesting range of frequencies, so from 10 to 30 gigahertz, where a certain type of very small dust, which we think is spinning, actually produces... Another foreground. One of the early uh, results from the Terrell experiment was one that indicated this spinning dust was real. At the time, I was skeptical by being this person who's always working on the um, systematics and calibration running about. Uh, mm-hmm. So we, we calibrated with some Americans, Ted, Max Tedmark, and they approached it in a very sort of black box approach. Right? You put in your equations and you get a result. Mm-hmm. If you look at the data, there's one blob near the border where the galaxy is cut off, and I don't trust the baselines. There's a big H2 region there, so I'm not mm. entirely convinced. So later on, I mentioned this to the time, the Experiment, Rafa, saying, well, if there's any spinning dust, it's in this blob here. So I was there looking at the first results. I thought oh, well, I'll have a look at this blob again. It yeah, the a beautiful spinning dust spectrum.
1: Oh, perfect. So it's the Perseus cloud. Mm-hmm. And we
0: did some follow observations with VSA. And yes, it's one of the strongest regions of spinning dust signal. This is a foreground, which could potentially, well, affect Cosmic Microwave background experiments looking to B modes. But I think we've ruled that out now because signals should dive quite strongly as you go towards the frequencies they're interested in, 100 to 200 gigahertz. But mm-hmm. right, it messes up your... Foreground extrapolation since all the space based W WMAP, and Planck all sort of ran out at sort of 30 GHz going to low frequency, and that's where the spectrum is as you go into lower frequencies is going up. So you think it's synchrotron or a mixture of synchrotron and free free emission due to electrons, hot electrons is the free free, and the synchrotron is the electrons in the magnetic field. but this spinning dust signal is, gives you a bump at around about 20 gigahertz and has a, a width of um, about 10 20 gigahertz as well. You can't see until you go over it. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, the old Tenerife experiments and the Cosmosomas and now the Quixote experiment, which I'm sort of involved in at the moment, is looking for that spinning dust signal.
1: So I guess in that way some of the, the ground-based experiments complement the space-based ones. Yes,
0: because you know? the whole reason why these space-based ones stopped at 30 gigahertz is because the size of horns and the dishes you need to get down to the resolutions you need are too big to fit in comfortably to a, on a satellite. So mm-hmm. the Planck had a sort of mirror was about one and a half meters and to do half a degree observations at 10 gigahertz you need at least three meters more. That's bigger than the launch vehicle you could pick it
1: in. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty huge, actually. Yes. Ten metres is... Ten a... meters. Well, not, well, yeah.
0: not three metres, but yes. But mm-hmm. if you want to go down to, to five gigahertz, yeah. then yes. Fortunately, the atmosphere is not so bad there, so then you can actually do this from the ground.
1: Mm. After uh, working on the Tenerife experiment, you then went to the very small array, and then what was the next step after that?
0: Okay, Planck.
1: Planck, oh. Plank.
0: So I worked on Planck
1: how long did the VSA run for?
0: From 2000 to 2007, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's about seven years.
1: Okay, that's quite well. Yeah. So tell us about Planck and what Planck, like. Okay, well,
0: Planck, I work mainly on the um, systematics. Hmm. So the, there were two main things. There was a thing called the ADC effect. So, the, so through all these experiments, you have a detector that gives you a voltage but you want to turn that into Kelvin. Mm-hmm. So you need a device to do this conversion, which is called an ADC, which is stands for Analog to Digital Converter. But they're not perfect. The way they convert a voltage into a binary number, essentially, the steps between each binary number and the voltage can be slightly irregular. It's normally good enough to 1% or better, which means you can actually measure the power quite well. But what wasn't really realised at the time was that the difference between a small difference in voltage to a small difference in temperature that you want to get out to do your calibration on. And it turns out if if there's a slight misstep in this voltage step as you go in binary numbers can put a little bit of a kink into this response curve. And that completely could cause a variation of up to a a few percent in the the calibration curve.
1: Which is huge for something like that. Yeah.
0: But To some extent, you can calibrate that out because you're calibrating on the dipole, which is also going through the same process. In the early days, there was this temperature cycle in the plank due to switching on and off the radio transmitter. So you actually had quite rapid changes in temperature, which changed the the gain of the system, which then changed the working level the voltage was running at, which then changed the voltage. So they were scratching their head and I came along and said, oh, I've seen this before with a teneurin fixer.
1: Oh, so you were the right person at the right time well, yes, pretty much yes, as so, well.
0: Yeah. So, so, so. I worked out a, a way by looking at the white noise so you can see the variations in the white noise and then invert that in to get out a response curve. Mm. Put that in and it fixes it to a sort of tenth of a percent level.
1: And I guess that just goes to show how much you need people who straddle instrumentation and observation because otherwise you wouldn't have had that experience and you wouldn't have known (laughs) that at all and i suppose it also goes to show how precise Planck is that you know problems on that scale mattered (laughs) yes so you also talked a little bit before about foregrounds one thing i know that people can do it but i really don't understand how you can subtract the universe (laughs) from an observation because it sounds like an impossible task well, you you subtract the local universe? The local universe, I should you say. Universe, yeah. Uh,
0: yes. It depends on the, the quality of your data. You need to know partly what your foregrounds are doing, and you also know to what your background similarly you're looking at the cosmic background. So we can use the laser arm. In this case, is the spectrum as you go in frequency it varies quite strongly. So the cosmic microwave background, if you work in thermodynamic units, should be fixed. So it should just look like a three K black body. But the foreground, so the the synchrotron, changes quite strongly with frequency, so it's quite strong at low frequencies and drops with a power law, so it goes very quickly with frequency. And then dust does something similar on the other side and ramps up quite strongly with frequency. Just at the top end of the Planck frequency, you can start seeing it curving over, where you start seeing the black body curve of dust, which is around about 20 Kelvin is the sort of typical dust temperature that... Since the dust is heated by starlight from our own galaxy, you have maps at uh, nine different frequencies, and you can interpolate se- essentially to. So the, the I think the, the cleanest frequencies in black were the, the 70 and 100 gigahertz. But well, if you look at the the lowest and highest frequencies, it's completely dominated by the foregrounds. You look at the 70 and the 100 gigahertz, you can see a thin bit of the galaxy now, and there's stuff at high latitudes, which you can't quite see by eye, but you know it's there. So you can actually extrapolate from where it's strongest, make up a template and the spectral dependency it has, and subtract that out at the clean frequencies at 1700 gigahertz, and then that gives you your cosmic microwave background map.
1: Just sounds so complicated, I'll be honest. No, it really shows the strength of modern astronomy, the fact that we can do that. And I remember one... um, we had an MSc student here, and he described what he was trying to do working on the CMB and what the group was trying to do is trying to detect a mosquito's wings at an ACDC concert <laughs> or something like that. Which, oh, right. yeah, I thought it kind of brought it home just how difficult that task is. And I suppose what happened with Bicep yes. actually shows that even more. Could you talk a bit more about yes, that? Yes,
0: so I did have a little bit of involvement in that since I remember we were sitting in the Lovell Theatre here watching the press conference. Uh, where they announced the results and they announced the level of their foreground subtraction. And they thought, well, actually, that's not quite right, since <laughs> we know there are areas of polarized sort of like 10% where the dust signal is, is weak. You tend to see a mixture of lots of dust population, but when you're looking at high galactic latitudes, you tend to see just sort of one, which is fairly strongly polarised. And there's another... Background as well, which is the cosmic infrared background. So, when you take that out, actually, there is about sort of like a 10% polarization there, and they were sort of subtracting off models that were sort of like 3 or 4%. So, that rang some bells. I did actually reverse engineer their PDFs to actually extract their data from their plots.
1: Wow! I did. That's commitment.
0: And I actually cross correlated it with the Flank data. Oh. and of course I couldn't say anything but it indicated that there was a problem
1: but so you, you kind of sat at home quite smug going I know what? there's an issue but I can't say anything
0: <laughs> it was worse than that yeah. because we, we had here all, all the people saying oh they beat you to it or, mm. and we were sort of, well hey they haven't and we know they haven't but we can't say anything <laughs> but the, that sort of analysis I did was putting up against all the quantization errors and that there was a correlation there so, mm. oh dear that sort of got me onto this Tiger team that went with Plank and the, the Bicep people. I worked up a bit more looking at the synchrotron emission. So the synchrotron limits, if you sort of getting down to those sort of levels, shouldn't be a problem if it's the, the typical synchrotron. If anything's flatter, then, then again, you can start feeling the problems. But So we went out there and sat in a room there, and I said, well, we have to go through a whole load of protocols gave them a little bit of our dust data, and then gave us their data, and then they did the correlation. So, oh, yes, there's a problem.
1: <laughs> and what was that like to kind of, because these are two fair, well, Planck is a world-leading project that was also extremely secretive. Yeah, It was kind of a running joke in astronomy <laughs> about how secretive Planck was. What was that like to then work in a collaboration with a completely different group? It was actually quite good. Mm.
0: They were quite good people. You could actually just sit down and have a chat, so it actually went mm. quite well. I mean, the problems was with was, was sort of the political level, you just sort of how much data sharing you can do, so there was quite a bit of restrictions on that. But by the end, that got fairly relaxed, and we sort of understood each other.
1: Yeah, that's good. That's how you'd hope science would be. Yes, yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, it turned out to be.
1: You mentioned a few times about measuring polarisation, and that was particularly something that BICEP, was the problem with BICEP. Could you tell us a little bit, first of all, about what polarisation is and its relevance to the CMB.
0: So polarisation tells you about the... So you have electrons which are electrons scattering photons and the photons have a particular direction that they oscillate in and that's called their polarisation. And the scattering process of electrons tends to favour one polarisation with respect to another depending how the light is distributed when it was scattered. So if you go back into the early universe and you've got a hot spot off to one side, and it's scattering off, that can give you a net polarisation signal when we see it again. And you can actually both see the polarisation signal and the hot spot that led to it. So there is a, a correlation between the polarisation and the temperature, and these are called E-modes. So this is fairly understandable, and it gives you an extra handle on determining things about the electron history in the universe and splitting some of the degeneracies you can get on certain parameters, which I can't think of at the moment. But. And that's all fairly understood, and that gives you more information to work with. But what everybody's interested in, the Holy Grail of the CMB, is these things called B-modes. And so the E-modes give you radial and circular patterns on the sky, whereas the B-modes are more kinky. Spiral patterns. And those, the things that can cause B-modes are these early primordial gravitational waves. And we're interested in those because they would be a, a smoking gun signal for inflation, which was back at 10 to the minus 35th of a second after the Big Bang, that caused whole universe to expand rapidly and would solve the problems of homogeneity and how one part of the universe that's completely disconnected from another one has the same temperature and has similar variations in fluctuations. So we would like to prove that inflation was a theory, but one of the things that it doesn't predict very well is the amplitude of these gravitational waves, and that sort of ties back into the mechanism that causes inflation. So the amplitude of the gravitational waves would tell you the energy scale that this inflation field happened at. and. In this case, there is no correlation between the temperature map and the, the polarisation signal. So we're working a little bit in, in the blind. We don't know what level it's expect Because the E modes, we knew what level to expect. Uh, for the B modes, we've got no idea. It could, in, in fact, be next to zero. We just don't know. So it's quite interesting.
1: So if you did find them, they'd have the potential to be a way of probing inflation and actually understanding some of the physics in that because I think at the moment there there aren't really any observational probes for that.
0: The observational probes are the power spectrum, the primordial power spectrum. So it predicts a a power law with a slight slope into it, which we are seeing, but then the typical astronomical thing is putting in a power law spectrum, so it it doesn't really explain it. It gives you a a way of producing it. Three signals for inflation, so what was the power spectrum? I can't remember the other one.
1: Hmm. But, well, this be, gives yeah. an, another method for kind of looking at the mechanism of inflation yes. and so on, but as you were saying, you, you don't actually know too much what you're looking for. <laughs> and what kind of things can make it difficult to observe these B modes?
0: Before, we were talking about the anisotropies and the, the foreground. You needed to get the foregrounds out of the way to about I think tens, yeah. a few tenths of a a percent well two no, for the intensity signal the strongest things on the plane but we 're not really interested in the plane you go up to high galactic latitudes and the foregrounds and the CMB is at a similar sort of amplitude you could do a, a crude bit of removal of the foregrounds and you can get quite a good signal to CMB unfortunately with B modes you 're well into the foreground so the predicted level of foregrounds is as I say roughly about the same level as the CMB anisotropies, whereas the E-mode signal is about an order of magnitude lower than that, and then the B-mode signal is about an of magnitude lower than that still. This is in power spectrum measurements. For B-modes, the biggest signal you can eliminate at the moment is a factor 10 below the anisotropy mm. in terms of temperature, in fact, and pushing lower. So that means you need to go clean up your foregrounds to at least a few percent, and in the future, maybe to a few tenths of a percent. So that's going to be really difficult.
1: No, that definitely sounds like quite a challenging thing to do, and I guess that's what the next generation of CMB telescopes are looking at.
0: Yes. In the pipeline now, there's a sort of the fourth generation of ground-based experiments and then some space-based... There isn't actually one agreed yet. There's a few plans. so I think Japanese said, the Lightbird... Americans have their pixie, but still haven't got funds to actually
1: Mm.
0: produce the experiment and launch it.
1: Yeah, still a little way off. Still a little way off. And of course, we've talked throughout about foregrounds, and for cosmologists, foregrounds are kind of a nuisance. But for astronomers, they're not at all. Could you talk a little bit about what we can learn from the foregrounds themselves? Okay,
0: so part of the project I'm currently involved in is working with Spanish, Italian and Cambridge. Looking at the Planck data and supplementing it with Quixote data. And this includes this spinning dust 10 to 15 GHz. So we're actually trying to tie down what the legacy project of Planck to actually try down the foreground synchrotron and the dust and the spinning dust in much more detail than with Planck by supplementing it with the Quixote data and any other data that we can lay our hands on. To actually try and figure out what the magnetic field of our own galaxy is, depends on getting the synchrotron and the dust signal sorted out, and also what's going on in the galactic plane. So there's the fan region, which is a, a region that's sort of in the Perseus arm fit, about one and a half thousand light years away, seems a bit puffed up, and there's the North Galactic Spur, which seems to be a bubble that's been inflated by I know region, a whole load of supernovae and hot stars are pumping up this bubble that could be right next to us around about 120 parsecs away, or it could be further away. We just don't know. We're trying to tie down where these sort of things are in our local area of the galaxy trying to try and improve our foreground predictions for these future B-mode experiments at high galactic latitude, and just basically trying to understand the galactic plane as well.
1: Mm-hmm. No small order, really. No small order. And you mentioned Quixote, this ground-based experiment. What kind of stages is that experiment in at the moment?
0: Okay, so that's been ongoing for a number of years now, five, seven years, going from various stages. So we had a single telescope observing at 10 to 19 gigahertz doing a foreground, a broad, full sky Survey of the sky, including the galaxy, and also regions earmarked for doing, looking for the speed mode signal on three areas of the sky. And it's been going on for five years. Just coming online is a second telescope, which is being populated with pixels to observe at thirty gigahertz and also forty-four gigahertz, which then will look at the both the the synchrotron emission again, over the whole sky at a lower level that we, we did with the earlier low-frequency experiments, and, and to look at these areas for B-mode. Probably won't be at the level where you can actually see the B-modes, because the, the other expenses are sort of getting to that levels, but would help predict the foregrounds that are going on there, mainly due to synchrotron. Because the one thing that hasn't been really realised until recently is that if you're looking at these nice frequencies of 100 and 150 GHz, Synchrotron has a sort of long lever arm and if you're trying to dig down B-modes 100 times lower than the present limits, then you're going to hit the synchrotron as Mm. well as the dust. So you need to sort both out and what level you expect.
1: Mm. Yeah, so even though you won't be able to find a constraint on B-modes now, it's going to help future observations for B-modes and tell us more about the galaxy. Yes. Yeah.
0: Especially with high galactic latitudes where it's fairly... A week signal to look at. Mm. And quite interesting because the stuff at high galactic latitudes is stuff that's been kicked off the plane, so either by the supernova explosions or bubbles being inflated, or even this thermi bubble of stuff towards the galactic centre. So mm. we're trying to dig into all that.
1: Oh no, that sounds very cool, and look forward to hearing some results from that. Thank you for coming on the Jodcast.